uh, our future really kind of depends on our ability to kind of connect beyond our profession uh, to become more active uh, socially. From the Harvard Graduate School of Design, this is Future of the American City. I'm Charles Waldheim. We're here today with author, advocate, and educator, Jeff Howe. Jeff joins us today to discuss his research on urban resistance and popular protest movements uh, in the public realm. Jeff, welcome. Yeah, nice to be here. Thank you. It's uh, nice to see you again. Thanks for for doing this. Um, um, among many other things, uh, you've uh, co-edited uh, recently a volume with uh, Sabine Nearbine called City Unsilenced, Urban Resistance and Public Space in the Age of Shrinking Democracy. And I've been struck about the the role that democracy and democratic uh, movements have played uh, in your work over the past several years. I mean, for for many years, we, we've known your work as a uh, an activist, an organizer, somebody working with people on the ground in, in different parts of the world, advocating for uh, progressive change through, uh, through uh, kind of urban futures. Um, tell us about the emergence of democracy as a particular framework for you uh, and w- when that first occurred uh, in your research. That's a good question. Uh, it, the notion of democracy, I think, uh, kind of occur in my work uh, like differently you know, at different time. I think early on, I was interested in uh, you know just how uh, you know like we can involve uh, you know people, you know citizens and communities in uh, the design and planning process, right? So more uh, in the realm of kind of participatory design. Uh, so you know everyday democracy. And you know, making uh, sure that uh, the design and planning uh, you know, the process that we are often engaged with as a professional are accountable to uh, the people that we serve. Uh, and then uh, I, I think with the uh, growing number of you know the protests around the world and uh, you know things that are, are you know, happen on the streets, you know, Arab Spring, uh, Occupy Wall Streets. Uh, I think uh, my kind of uh, attention to this kind of notion of democracy began to kind of shift to uh, sort of at more kind of macro level, right? Uh, so how you know public space uh, in particular can uh, really kind of function as a vehicle uh, for democracy in terms of uh, allowing people to you know voice their uh, opinions, uh, allowing for you know political mobilization. Uh, so democracy at uh, sort of more kind of macro level compared to uh, kind of more limited form of kind of participatory uh, planning and design. And uh, so it has kind of shifted uh, over time, uh, I think, with the you know, current affairs and also with the, the sort of level of interest uh, in the profession on the kind of role of you know, design and planning in public space and so forth. In City Unsilenced, you call for uh, what you describe as an emancipatory politics of public space. So what do you mean by that phrase? I think it really uh, is meant to uh, kind of re um, kind of recognize uh, the role of public space in the process of democracy, right? Uh, so you know, public space, I think for a long time is, uh, has been kind of Taken for granted that it's part of the urban landscape, is uh, where we, you know we gather. Uh, it's is uh, a vehicle for protest from time to time, 
um, but it hasn't really been looked at as a way as as kind of integral part of uh, democracy until uh, kind of more recent years. And it has been uh, the case historically, but I think uh, for quite some time because of the um, uh, the way uh, city has uh, been developed and uh, and also in particularly in the, in the context of North America, you know uh, the process of uh, you know suburbanization, right? So like the empty and out of uh, the inner part of the city, uh, the public space has, has kind of lost its kind of central uh, kind of role kind of in society. And uh, and then with the advent of kind of events uh, in the you know, last you know, 10, 20 years, I think we begin to see uh, kind of public space coming back to the center of uh, discussion about democracy as a place where uh, you know people can 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 organize, can mobilize, can uh, call attention to important social issues and political issues, and uh, so that is sort of coming back, and uh, and the, so the role of public space in uh, really kind of engendering an active democracy, and uh, so that's very much kind of what we mean by emancipatory politics of public space. You've worked. Um for many years on both sides of the Pacific. Um, you've worked closely with indigenous tribes, farmers, uh, villagers in Asia, inner city immigrant youths uh, and elders in North American cities. Are there cultural differences in our understanding or our aspirations for public space that are significant in your experience? I mean, you've, on the one hand, you've referenced the the kind of the macro project of looking at broader social protest and if not global, certainly kind of multicultural, multi-continental set of movements in the last two decades. Um, but are there significant differences and, and are there challenges around the idea of projecting public space uh, in other con- in other contexts? Yeah, absolutely. Um, in uh, East Asia, especially a uh, country that has a long, you know, kind of Confucian uh, kind of legacy, you know, uh, Japan, China, uh, Korea, uh, in in that, under that tradition, you know, public space was pretty much non-existent. Uh, the, the, the society was organized uh, with, you know, like uh, state on top or, you know, like uh, kingdom on top. And then you go directly from state uh, to family. There was nothing in between. There was not, there was no uh, notion of civil society. Right, uh, the you know space where people can organize, can uh, you know it can have kind of, you know collective, you know political, uh, you know consciousness. Uh, that was never the case, and uh, so public space uh, in the Western sense was you know something new, uh, especially to uh, the East Asia, Asian society, and to, to so this is you know something that people are learning to uh, understand. Uh, and uh, and there's a sense of kind of agency that, that come with it that uh, that you know, people can actually you know that we can actually own the public space. You know, it's not something that is kind of governed uh, by the state. And uh, but it's still at the same time, you know, is is uh, there's still a significant portion of the population that that uh, do not understand uh, the concept, right? So whenever uh, uh, with you know planning and design in particular, you know, like we always, you know, people always think that this is the responsibility of the state, that you know, that people don't have the agency in terms of shaping what the built environment uh, is, and that's very different from that kind of more recent uh, liberal uh, democratic tradition that you know that you know that we have, uh, people have a voice in terms of you know like how cities are developed and things you know things like that. 
Uh, so there is a, a strong kind of cultural difference uh, in, in that respect. But I think, uh, but the society in, in East Asia are, are catching up and, and we are seeing that really kind of innovative ways uh, where people can uh, kind of you know, self-organize, can uh, take ownership and then develop agency in terms of shaping uh, the built environment. And uh, in, the, in a way, it, uh, and to, it's interesting that like, having you know, the ability to work on both sides of the Pacific, uh, there's actually a, a great deal to learn from um, from either side. No doubt, no doubt. And you, um, you know, you, you've been quite active in in, in a variety of roles. Uh, trained as an architect and a landscape architect, and as you said, moved from uh, engagement in participation processes, you know, connecting citizenry to decision making about the built environment, to in the most recent um, publications, uh, more of a, what you describe as a macro view, a kind of a broader broader view. Um, um, you touched on uh, the Arab Spring, 2010-11, uh, Occupy Wall Street, and the broader Occupy movement, uh, 2011. Uh, we've talked about the Indignados movement in Spain, 15M in Greece. Um, those come out of, um, in many ways, uh, a set of political and political eco economic conditions uh, that I can see as contemporaneous. They, they're similar in era. They come at a very similar period of time. Um, and yet in the book, uh, City Unsilenced, you link them in certain ways to um, uh, Taiwan's uh, sunflower movement, the Hong Kong umbrella movement, which were later. And I wonder if, um, you know, if you could distinguish, you know, to what extent do those movements share a kind of origin story or a kind of DNA? Um, to, to what extent do you find them as, you know, s sorting together as a, as a coherent set of things? Right, right. Um, I mean, uh, so you, you, uh, pointed out, uh, you know, Taipei's you know, sunflower movements and uh, Hong Kong's uh, umbrella movement. Those are, definitely have their own uh, distinct uh, political context, uh, but there are also kind of commonality uh, between those two movements and the, you know all the other you know like uh, protest movements, you know, you know, Occupy Wall Street, uh, Indiana movements, uh, you know, Fifteen and so forth. Uh, so, for example, in uh, in the uh, sunflower movement in Taipei, uh, for instance, uh, the uh, sort of the, the sparks you know for that particular incident was a trade agreement between Taiwan and China, uh, and that will uh, take away uh, you know some of the uh, uh, mechanism that protect uh, the local uh, businesses uh, in uh, in the same way you know, of you know things that have been done in you know, North America in Europe in terms of the retreat of the state uh, you know from the society, the protection of you know communities and citizens, uh, the uh, diminishing uh, kind of you know, social welfare, for example. Uh, so we all kind of fall under this kind of large umbrella of neoliberalism. And uh, so so uh, in the case of the sunflower movement definitely has its own kind of distinct uh, character, but the the they are you know, also very strong connections uh, to uh, the movement happening in the rest of the world. Uh, similarly, in Hong Kong, uh, they uh, the umbrella movement uh, prior to the umbrella movement, there were already uh, a number of you know, protest movements uh, in the city that also had to do with the uh, sort of uncontrolled uh, kind of development, so the takeover of uh, private interests over. Uh, collective memories in the city, right? So development of uh, redevelopment of uh, the Star Ferry Terminal, uh, you know, the demolition, uh, demolition of you know, Prince Terminal, for example, 
in uh, in the interest of further expansion of the waterfront developments. Uh, th that also has a strong connection to sort of the overall kind of neoliberalization uh, neo of you know, urban landscape that you see you know, around the world. And uh, so I think, you know, with, and even in you know, Occupy Wall Street you know, movement and others that we have seen in the West, uh, I mean, they all have they all have uh, their own kind of distinct context. I think what we have found through uh, the book is that uh, despite these kind of distinct contexts, there is an underlying you know connection uh, that had to do with uh, the retreat of the state and uh, the uh, kind of takeover of uh, private interests that sort of defined uh, you know neoliberalism around the world. Jeff, would it be fair to say that um, uh, that collection of movements? Um, 2010, 2011, through the 2014, 2015, different parts of the world, would it be fair to say that they they emerged from you know uh, economic crisis and 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 political challenges, but then they became spatial? Yes, uh, I, I think that's also kind of uh, one of the central point that we would like to make is that uh, it's not just the the you know uh, political economic system that was in crisis. Uh, urban spaces are also in crisis. Right, so the, uh, the the way that public space has diminished uh, in terms of uh, uh, its uh, accessibility, right, mm -hmm. uh, and the in increasing you know the enclosure of the public realm, uh, you know, like through you know uh, public-private partnership, through uh, kind of corporatization of uh, you know public spaces. Uh, so public space was also under attack. So a lot of the the things that we're looking at, uh, you see both. Uh, so the example of the uh, Google uh, bus uh, blockade in San Francisco, it was both about uh, the uh, the takeover of the public realm uh, by you know, the corporations. So you know, like Google has like almost unlimited access to the you know, sidewalks and bus stops, and they pay you know the city very little in return. And and uh, and what you get is that neighborhood that are being gentrified because these buses, you know, like the Google employee can go everywhere, and then uh, and just outprice, you know, like uh, renters and uh, in, in neighborhoods. And uh, so we have both. You have sort of diminishing public uh, space, the actual physical space, uh, and also the diminishing kind uh, of accountability uh, in the public realm, and they go hand in hand. Of course, Occupy Wall Street, um, you know, uh, phenomenon emerging and then spawning a global, you know, nationwide and then global Occupy movement on Zuccotti Park, a privately owned public space in New York. And so the idea of the, the status of these spaces and what might be possible in a park or a square being infringed upon. Um, uh, I, I'm interested in uh, what you describe in the book as um characteristics um, with respect to these new uh, kind of uh, social protest or political speech movements vis-a-vis uh, -vis, um, a previous generation of social movements. Um, you describe uh, these new movements as sharing um, uh, communities of interest that self-organize, uh, uh, working across class, um, uh, democratic, small, flexible, um, 
that they often have challenges with respect to so social or cultural identity. They're not homogenous, these groups. They have their own fractions and uh, their, their own frictions and their own kind of uh, fault lines, uh, as well as a focus on self-help or empowerment. And so to what extent can the, we see these movements today as having something in common with the labor rights struggles that were primarily along class lines between labor and, 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 and capital in the 20th century? And to what extent are they a completely new phenomenon? I think it's, there are things that are new and things that may be uh, historical. I think the uh, labor uh, struggle is still there, but because the economy, uh, the economic system that we have now is actually more decentralized and more flexible, right? Uh, so you know the, the fact that production has been has been outsourced, um, and you know to to multiple places uh, around the world. Uh, it's much more complex. Uh, there's not uh, as simple as you know, like the uh, the capitalist versus you know the labor in one in the industrial town. So it's like in the old kind of uh, industrial model, it's much more dispersed, and uh, and so which uh, require you know the labor movement itself to be able to kind of uh, uh, adopt the ability uh, for self organization. Uh, and also the you know the, labor, the fact that labor are so dispersed, uh, there's not there's uh, not a way for a centralized kind of labor movements uh, in be uh, sub organized at, at at multiple locations, and and that's kind of what we are seeing uh, because of uh, the way uh, the economy has struck have been restructured, uh, this the whole notion of kind of flexible economy, and uh, and we're seeing that so being mirrored. Uh, in the social movements, uh, in a way, you know, like because things are much more dispersed, like having, having people are having uh, to kind of self-organize more, and also I think the technology play a very important factor. Uh, social media, you know, telecommunication you know, technology that allow you know these kind of mobilization to occur in more kind of spontaneous way, and uh, and allowing a sort of more distributed uh, network to kind of emerge. So there's not like a one central, you know, like a labor party or like a union that is controlling the social movement. Uh, the people are having more ability and agency to organize something on their own. And this is being reflected in the, in the outcome of the social movement on the streets. And as you suggest, I mean, rather than replacing the public realm or replacing the role of public space, you know, communications technology and social media have, in fact, been orchestrated vis-a-vis -vis spatial phenomenon. I've been really fascinated in your work to follow that the relationship between social media communications and other forms of electronic communication and the spatialization of these uh, protests. Yeah, absolutely. I think we, we, what we're seeing is almost like an augmented uh, reality is that uh, you cannot... Uh, separate the digital from the physical. Uh, you know, like the you know, Park, uh, not uh, well, Zagati Park to some extent as well. But I think Tahrir Square uh, in, in Cairo was sort of the, uh, the the tipping point in which you know begin to see uh, you know social media having uh, a, a really extraordinary kind of you know, power in terms of uh, mobilizing people and, and our people to kind of self uh, self organize, allow images to be. Uh, you know, stream, uh, live stream and projected uh, everywhere in a way that uh, has not been done be uh, before. And uh, and they go hand in hand. You have to have people on the street uh, in order for these kind of live images to be uh, broadcast, right? Uh, in order to show kind of mass of people kind of, you know, coming together 
and this kind of emotional connection, this kind of phys- uh, you know like physical connection that people have uh, with you know events with images. Uh, but at the same time, you also need you know social media to kind of really kind of broadcast the, Im- the, the images and also to bring people uh, you know to the streets. And so they begin to kind of feed onto each other and create this kind of new reality that we're experiencing today. Jeff, you mentioned uh, Tahrir Square, of course, you know, occupied in the in the, the revolution in, in Cairo, Egypt in uh, 2011. Um, and I was struck in the context of the Arab Spring and in the reception and both the media coverage, but also the reception in, in our disciplines, uh, the contrast, the comparison and the contrast between, you know, Tahrir Square, which has this on the one hand, the kind of you know classical you know urban form, but also has a, a great history of being a venue for political speech and and, and social unrest. Uh, in relationship to the Pearl Roundabout in Manama, Bahrain, this is the the kind of tra- highway engineered traffic circle that we saw on those televised images. And I, I wonder if you know, uh, of course, they ended up having very different fates. In, in Bahrain, the the traffic circle and the and the Pearl Monument were destroyed in 2011. In fact, to kind of erase the possibility of future uh, unrest. I, I wonder, Jeff, in your experience, if the if the spatial typology, you know, does the shape of that urban you know figure, either a traditional square or a, a highway traffic circle, does that matter vis-a-vis its relationship to political speech? Uh, absolutely. I think the, the actual physical space and all the things that are associated with it, you know, the, the symbolism, the meaning, uh, you know, what the space uh, represents for people, I think those, all those still matters, right? So Tahrir Square being a historical place for uh, these kind of gatherings, uh, even though it's now sort of more like a traffic circle, I think it still retains uh, that, that history and meaning for people. Uh, you know, Zuccotti Park, uh, is proximity to Wall Street is uh, accessibility in terms of you know public transportation, uh, you know multiple subway exits, uh, very central to the you know financial business center uh, in, in you know like Lower Manhattan. Uh, all that play a very important role in terms of like you know like um, you know like bring people you know to the site, uh, communicating uh, you know something that is meaningful. Uh, you know, to to the audience, and also space still matter. Uh, and, and so that you know, by you know, like uh, talk, you know, just discussing the discussing the role of technology, I don't think that diminish the role of the actual physical space uh, in these kind of protests. And thinking as a, a designer, you know, does, does that imply, or does are you explicitly arguing that one can design in ways that are either you know more supportive of democratic protest or less? Okay, so now now we're getting to the real interesting question. <laughs> uh, yes and no. Uh, I, I I think as designers we tend to think that uh, you know like there's a uh, well there's obviously a role that design can play, uh, but uh, I think we should be cautious in terms of arguing that you know, protests can be designed uh, in a way. You know, protests may be organized against design, right? And and that's. The whole point of you know, doing something you know subversive and uh, and and really kind of challenging the the uh, the hegemony of uh, you know like urban planning you know urban design uh, so there's something to be said about like you know, appropriating something that would design you know for something else and that gives you know, agency and power uh, to you know the movement actors right um, so I would say that uh, I mean. We should be 
this uh, perhaps I think we should look at this uh, another way is that you know we should look at uh, design as uh, not inhibiting uh, you know protest uh, to happen right uh, it can go the other way around that we can you know the uh, you know, the space can be designed in a way to uh, uh, become a hurdle to you know these kind of public gatherings, and 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 as designers and planners, I think we should be more mindful in terms of you know, like not making that happen, right? To to you know like design in a, in a space in a way that is accessible for all kinds of activities, uh, to be you know to you know, make it more kind of open ended, to allow people to have the ability and agency to. Know, do what they want to do you know in the space uh you know in the city and and, and then you know like people can you know self-organize and and kind of and then there uh and then sort of appropriate the space that will use the space will receive the space or you know like design the space in a way that uh, support uh, their cause and, and to me that kind of design uh is much more powerful and uh, and this actually had a strong connection, perhaps, you know, to the landscape urbanism uh, discourse in terms of making, uh, you know, like acknowledging, you know, that spaces need to be more open-ended, that we can, you know, set something in direct in in this sort of a direction, but not defining the actual, you know, outcome. Would you give us an example of the kinds of design interventions that would render a place less open? Yes. Uh, so, you know, for example, you know, like in Hong Kong. Uh, it was almost impossible for people to gather uh, because uh, it's, the space is so limited. Or this, the city was so dense, and you know, if you stop on a sidewalk, uh, people behind you will be running into you. <laughs> right? uh, and uh, so, and this it's not an urban environment that is really designed for uh, public gathering. It's really designed for facilitating uh, traffic and things like that. Right. Uh, but then, uh, you know, like uh, is, but yeah, you know, that you know, that the fact that umbrella movements uh, happen, uh, and then the uh, anti-extradition uh, movement happened in 2019, uh, that that sort of configuration configuration could be, uh, you know, completely kind of subverted, right? That you could have this kind of uh, flash mob. Uh, protests, uh, despite the limitation of uh, uh, the urban spaces, I think speak to you know like the the power of the kind of social movement to uh, uh, really kind of overcome uh, the limitation of space. So I, I guess what I'm saying that uh, design can play an important role in terms of limiting the possibility, but ultimately, if you have enough people, uh, if if you have the the kind of the political will, you have the uh, people willing to kind of take the risk, uh, those kind of limitations can also go away. I, I've been struck by how um, you know, you know, on on the one hand, it, you know, it, it, as you you know suggested, it's it's a kind of uh, it's an oxymoron to you know design a space for protest, right? I mean, of course, you know, in the Western tradition, we do have the you know speakers' corners in in London, or we have you know Olmsted reserving a space for political speech, and there's that tradition. Um, but I've been interested to see uh, both in your work and in, in in the work of others the kind of covering off of these protest movements in recent years, and the extent to which they can change the venue and therefore change the the, the conversation very, very quickly, you know, whereas Zuccotti Park uh, in New York uh, or um, uh, Tahrir Square in Cairo might be, you know, set aside urban spaces. 
it's really when you know the populace really blocks the flow and produces real friction that things begin to heat up now i mean i was struck by how in the black lives uh, matter protests in the united states in 2020 um there was this sense that you know at least in the cities that i experienced new york and boston on a regular basis there was a certain you know flow there was a certain expectation of certain places but as soon as the protest got onto the highway system there was a different response. There was a different response from the state. There was a different response from the media. The tone shifted, um, and uh, something similar, presumably in uh, in in uh, in Hong Kong, when the airport becomes a venue, right? And there's something about changing the venue out of these more traditional urban spaces into spaces of production and flow, and blocking, resisting that flow that seems to be a part of the the playbook. Yes, absolutely. I think that's uh, is uh, when you have. Uh, you know, uh, you know, protests happening in airport that completely, you know, stop the airport from from functioning, right? So the the uh, disruption, the the, uh, the level of disruption, uh, was basically sort of a, a, a toolkit, you know, to you know get the uh, authority to uh, to be on the negotiating table, right? So that's kind of what the movements are all about. It's like it's not just like bring people onto the streets. And you know, take a few pictures. You want people. You want people to be at the negotiating table to be, um, you know, making concessions uh, to you know come to some sort of uh, agreement, and uh, and to have you know like the, these you know, causes or agenda for the movement uh, you know responded to, and, and that's sort of the outcome that uh, you know a lot of these movements are trying to accomplish. So it's not just like you know getting people onto the street. It's actually what kind of the political outcome that you're trying to accomplish from the um, the public protests and political speech following the killing of Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri in 2014, um, through the killing of George Floyd in, in Minneapolis in 2020. Over the past decade, uh, you know, we've witnessed a renewed commitment to political speech and direct action through the occupation of the street in the American city across the country. Um, uh, you know, whether it's you know police violence or or the kind of ongoing gun violence more generally. Um, uh, we've touched on the Black Lives Matter protests of uh, 2020 and beyond. Um, and I wonder, um, to what extent do those protests more recently in the American city, do they, what do they share with those that came out of the wake of the 2008 financial crisis that we've been discussing, the 2011-2014 variety? Well, I think they've you know, followed the same pattern in terms of, you know, like really raising awareness. Uh, so, you know, like, uh, you know, like, Occupy, Occupy Wall Street, like, you know, the slogan of, you know, like the 1%, you know, versus the 99%, right? So the, the, the economic disparity uh, that the movement called attention to, right? It, that issue hasn't, uh, I think what the Occupy Wall Street movement was able to accomplish was able to, was to articulate that level of disparity uh, through the movements. And uh, and so what we're seeing with the Black Lives uh, Matters uh, movement is that it also put uh, the issue on the agenda, on the sort of the collective kind of consciousness of our society, that uh, this issue has been going around for too long, right? Uh, you know, pol uh, police brutality, you know, structural racism, uh, these are uh, issues that need to be you know, dealt with in in this generation. And uh, so, and that's also as an outcome of you know, people who you know have you know protests on the streets, uh, who have organized you know, all kinds of forums, who have uh, you know run for offices, and you know so that, that movement really put the issues you know, on the table, 
uh, in a way that uh, has not been done before, you know, perhaps, you know, you know, besides the civil rights movements. More recently, um, we've seen the street in the American city appropriated by um, groups with very different political agendas from the far right or neo-fascist militias. Uh, there was the Unite the Right rally, so-called, in Charlottesville, Virginia, on the campus of the University of Virginia in 2017. Uh, there was uh, former President Trump then walking through Lafayette Square with senior military leadership for a photo op at St. John's Church in June of 2020. There was the Patriot Front um, organization that marched through Boston uh, in 2022. Um, Jeff, are there significant distinctions between or you know, dif differences of, of significance here between um, occupying the street for political speech from the left or from the right? Uh, yes, uh, I think uh, obviously you know, the agenda, the the uh, the issues are different, uh, but I think there's also uh, a distinction between a uh, so a nonviolent uh, gathering and the violent uh, gathering. So, for example, you know January six, right, the Capitol, uh, uh, you know, Hill riot, right, and uh, and you know like uh, this is you know, not a nonviolent uh, gathering. You know, compared to you know, like uh, you know, most of the you know Black Lives Matter protests, people are generally kind of peaceful. There, there are a few kind of rioters or you know looting that that may have happened, uh, but that was not sort of the intent of the uh, the movement organizers, right? But with you know January six, uh, for example, uh, that was very different, uh, and that was almost like a a, a you know, treason, the overthrow of the uh, of the democracy, right? Uh, so that is the main distinction, uh, I think, between you know, some of these movements. I'm trying not to kind of oversimplify, but I think there is a strong dist distinction between uh, the you know the nonviolent uh, resistance, uh, the collective resistance, uh, and uh, you know things that are really kind of doing damage uh, to our democracy. And we've discussed in in uh, in this conversation and previously, and and you've you know um, you know in in, in your work uh, chronicled the. The extent to which you know uh, the city, let's call it the American city, for the sake of argument, now is is already under threat by you know private capital, a kind of neoliberal political economy in which uh, you know the public realm is already under threat. Um, and now, in the context of uh, what we're discussing uh, over the past several years, we see our democratic institutions also quite vulnerable. We've, I think, we've learned that many of the things we thought were constitutionally protected or, or somehow, you know, it, it built into legal frameworks and 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 court decrees and legislation are actually just norms. <laughs> um, and I wonder if, you know, as you speculate about the future of the American city, I wonder if you could um, help us understand the way that you see those threats uh, and sort of where we are going forward. I mean, on the one hand, um, you know, you, you've said there's there's not a direct correspondence between the shape of the city and uh, forms of democratic uh, organization. But clearly, you've also been very clear that, um, you know, as our democratic institutions are eroded, as the kind of free flow of capital seems to be without limit, you know, uh, impinging upon our ability to to put um, kind of limitations uh, in that regard, you know, if to put it crassly, you know, if if a dollar is speech politically, um, aren't our public you know spaces, aren't our public realms really under threat? Uh, so going back to the, the uh, kind of early part of the question about uh uh, like you know, democracy, right? Uh, like as an institution, and and uh, and how that you know is uh, is uh, being kind of undermined and uh, and, and it's been questioned. I think with uh, 
what uh, diversity events I think have reminded us is that you know democracy is something that we need that, that has to be lived. Right? It has to be uh, maintained, has to be managed, uh, uh, and it has to kind of you know, be engaging. Uh, if not, you know the system can easily go in a very different direction. Uh, depending on kind of who's running for offices and what agenda has been put forward, and so I think at the uh, so I think fundamentally, uh, you know, for uh, democracy to to kind of really work uh, for uh, the mass is that you know like uh, everybody needs to be engaged in in, in a more active way. Uh, so like you know like starting from the most fundamental level in terms of like you know being involved in your neighborhood. Being uh, like you know, active in uh, you know in the election process, you know, you know, like paying attention to uh, issues that that matters to society, um, and and that is actually becoming more uh, a bit more difficult now because of the uh, uh, the messengers uh, that are coming from you know, the, the the media, the so uh, you know different kinds of media, mass media, social media that. Uh, that you know, it's a kind of over uh, sort of explosion of kind of information that's difficult for anyone uh, to track. So I think we need to find a way of kind of uh, like connecting uh, people to the democratic institution, right? Um, and uh, and this might come back to uh, you know like something that as designers and plan uh, planners that that role that we can play. That if we can uh, uh, be more active in terms of uh, well, like proactive in terms of involving uh, citizen and communities in the project that we're working on, uh, that you know we are contributing to uh, building of a more kind of active democracy that people are uh, connected to the issue that matters to you know, the neighborhood, uh, the district, uh, to the you know, issue that they're interested. Uh, be it you know like you know like a protection of like endangered species, uh, climate change, or things like that. Uh, those are the things that we can facilitate in terms of you know like involving people in you know democratic decision making. And maybe that's a way that we can contribute uh, to a more kind of engaged and active democracy. I mean that response uh, reminds me of um, something that Ezra Klein has been saying recently, which is that democracy is really less a set of institutions and more of a practice. That is, it has to be practiced. Um, so let's use this, Jeff, then to pivot. You know, you know, if not back or pivot toward um, again. You know, being you know on the ground, being in a community, uh, thinking about the role of designers and planners. Are are you optimistic uh, that we have the right tools or the right fora for? discussing publicly the shape of the city? Um, I mean, I know that you've been involved in this work for many, many decades to good effect in many contexts, but I, there's been, on the one hand, you know, we've, we, we've, you know, we've internalized the failures of modernism, I think, as a discipline. You know, I think we've had, you know, two generations of people that have been educated like you and I have that top-down decision-making is, is, not, is not really the way to make vibrant communities. Having said that, uh, we now have a, a variety of processes and mechanisms in place through citizen engagement, participation. And, and I just wonder, like, what is your sense, especially in the American context, of the state of play of that level of engagement or, um, you know, participation? Um, are, you, are you optimistic that we have the right tools? Do we have the right language? And what might we be doing on that front? Well, I uh, I'm an optimist, so, <laughs> uh, and so I I'm, I am optimistic in terms of uh, uh, the future. In terms, if we uh, you know think of, uh, thinking about you know the tools and methods that we have available to us, uh, those actually have been around, 
uh, and that, you know, like uh, prehistoric design is not a new thing. It's been around, you know, since uh, the 60s. There are uh, models and precedents uh, that demonstrate how that could work. Uh, but we do have, you know, a profession that is uh, not quite equipped to uh, apply uh, those tools and models. Uh, we are constrained by, you know, economic you know, considerations. We're, you know, constrained by how the profession is structured. Uh, the expectation for uh, you know professionals, you know, designers, and planners, and uh, so I think those are the barrier that we need to kind of you know break through. We need also more uh, people who are, uh, are willing to take on kind of political leadership. You know, we need to have more designers and planners run for offices so that you know that our agenda uh, can uh, be aligned with uh, the agenda for. Uh, you know, other, you know, like, you know, interest group and uh, constituents uh, in, in society. We need to connect, you know, things that we care about to, you know, like, you know, social issues, you know, housing, uh, equity, um, you know, social services. Uh, and so being, I think our future really kind of depends on our ability to uh, kind of connect uh, beyond our profession. And, uh, and so, uh, so it's not just the tool and methods that we have available to us, but to really to kind of build connection, uh, to become more active uh, politically and socially, uh, kind of beyond what we do as, as uh, uh, a typical kind of you know, professional designers and planners. In your 2010 book, um, Insurgent Public Space, you tell the story of the appearance of an eight-foot-long metal pig that arrived uh, unannounced and uninvited in uh, the Seattle neighborhood of Fremont in 2001. Um, what kind of lessons can you draw from that kind of spontaneous, uh, um, you know, spontaneous cultural production, let's call it? Uh, I think the lesson, one of the lessons is that... Um, uh, what we do, uh, well, this may uh, sound more like you know technical urbanism <laughs> for folks who are familiar with uh, the, the discourse is that these kind of short-term uh, interventions uh, can have uh, you know some sort of long-term you know, implication as well, and so not to discount you know our ability to something to do something spontaneous, uh, tactical. Um, and to kind of engage a, a broader audience in a conversation about what might be possible uh, in the urban environments uh, or you know in a uh, economic system, and uh, so you know like you know like our profession is uh, we have so much baggage in terms of uh, like uh, the the methods the process that we need to go through in a typical design and planning process that almost takes forever, right? And uh, so we need to look at you know, things that we can do you know, kind of in a more kind of tactical and spontaneous way uh, to get the conversation going, to get put the issue on the table, uh, and then you know to get more people involved uh, in uh, you, know, you know the things that we're interested in. And uh, so you know it's almost like building a social movement, right? Uh, that the social movement can you know is it's not something that you can plan. Uh, it's, it's something that you, you need to kind of uh, mobilize and organize. Uh, and then you need to kind of you know, reach out, you need to do you know, something to get attention. Uh, and, you know, and things will follow after that, uh, but you know, things won't happen unless you do something uh, at first. And so that that's kind of one lesson I, at least I got from uh, the story of the pigs in, in Fremont. Fantastic. Um, Jeff, last question. Um, what are you working on next? 
Uh, good question. I am. Let me see. Uh, I am. I, I recently got involved with uh, a group called the Southeast Asia Neighborhood uh, Network, and so we are. Uh, it's a, a consortium of multiple uh, research team uh, in East Asia. Uh, so these are. Uh, initiative that connects university scholars with you know, local communities. And the idea is that we uh, begin to kind of learn from each other. Um, so this is kind of one project I'm, I'm very excited uh, to uh, get involved with. And also Southeast Asia is like a, 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 a whole new different world uh, compared to you know, some other community that I've been working with. There's so much you know, like a culture and so much tradition and uh, and there's also so much uh, like like on tap, you know, a human agency. Uh, recently, I, I was in Indonesia, and uh, uh, this I might get into more detail here than what's needed. But uh, years during the COVID uh, in in Seattle, we started this project called Seattle uh, Street Sync, and it's basically a DIY uh, you know hand washing station that anybody can build uh, and put on the streets. And we had such a difficult time to get the city to really kind of embrace this as a concept. And it's just the way that, you know, the North American city are really not designed in a way for for DIY. Was that because you asked for permission first? Yes, yes. So we had to get permits from the city. We have to get all, you know, the, the agreement from like neighbors and, you know, like uh, business and so forth. But whereas in uh, Surabaya, I was I just uh, visited uh, a week or two ago. Uh, uh, it's uh, like the realization that the, uh, the city outside North America is so much easier to hack uh, that you can do like, really kind of spontaneous interventions, uh, and uh, that that really kind of provide opportunity for human agency, like for citizen community to to do something spontaneous. And there was like you know like tons and tons of like hand washing stations that people built for themselves there, uh, that I just discovered on this recent trip, and that it was just phenomenal. And that sort of a cultural difference that go back to one of your earlier question uh, is quite re revealing. And I'm interested in really kind of tap into this and explore more, and then you know finding ways that we can begin to kind of learn from each other. Jeff Howe, thanks so very much. Thank you. You've been listening to Future of the American City, curated by the Office for Urbanization at the Harvard Graduate School of Design. This conversation was supported by the Knight Foundation and the generous donors to the American Cities Fund. To learn more, visit votac.gsd.harvard.edu.